Welcome to Conversations with Connors. I'm your host, Adam Connors. In today's podcast, we meet Scott Gerber. Scott is the CEO of the Community Company and Young Entrepreneur Council. He's contributed to the likes of the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Bloomberg, Fortune, and many more. Today, we discuss Scott's recently published book, Super Connector, and he shares with us very insightful and frank points on what it really means to be a super connector. Scott's discerning viewpoints about networking are extremely eye-opening and bring to the forefront the need to focus in your network. And more importantly, how to get focused. This is an exceptional listen. So without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Scott Gerber. So I want to hear about how you became a Jet fan. (laughs) (laughs) It started after a long and painful childhood of having a father who is the quintessential New York stereotype. You're either Yankees, Giants, or in my case, Mets and Jets. Oh, I didn't know you were a Mets fan. Oh, well, I know. I, see, I broke from the, the ranks on that one. I just decided against baseball together. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> there couldn't be two losing situations in my family. My, my, my <laughs> wife, when I get home from Jets games already, knows how the day and the week are going to go based on who won or how badly they barely won or how badly they lost. Because, you know, Jets games aren't pretty to begin with. <laughs> and, and are you a fan where you're at most of the games? Or, uh, and- you know, since I had more kids, uh, you know, desperately trying to get to as many as I can. My father and I, um, one of the first things that when I became more financially successful, it was, you know, they were building the stadium, MetLife at the time from the old stadium. And, you know, I had the opportunity to buy uh, season tickets, which was like a dream of my father's to have for a long time. So I bought the tickets and it's been a really great opportunity to, to sort of be, you know, back with my father again and have that quality time. But at the same time, know that that quality time is over something that you would like to you know, beat your head over with a baseball bat, realizing the financial investment you're making is just insane. Uh, Only in New York can you have a PSL that actually is not an asset Uh, on top of the team you're investing in in the first place. So, man. All right. Well, do you think you'll pass that on to your uh, to your kids? Hopefully, if they're smart, they'll go the other way, run and say they want want nothing to do with it. They'll they'll break the curse of uh, the Mets Jets and they'll like move to San Francisco, be like a 49ers fan, even better. <laughs> well, we, we've got with us Scott Gerber. Scott, rather than me botching what you do, what your company does, and all the things that you've got going on, yep. if you'd be kind enough to, to give us an overview. Sure. So I'm the CEO of the community company. We build community-driven programs for uh, brands and media companies. Um, we've also recently just uh, started working with large global brands to build uh, content contributor networks as well that allows their influencers and stakeholders to talk about the things that matter uh, to larger uh, groups of folks that also the brands want to uh, connect with as well. And I'm the co-author of the new book, Super Connector, uh, Stop Networking and Start Building Business Relationships That Matter. Uh, my co-author was my co-partner in crime, uh, Ryan Paw uh, from the community company. So really good stuff. I want to hear about the book. What prompted you to write the book? If you don't mind, for the people that aren't familiar with the book, talk about it, and I'll keep pinging you with questions as you go. Sure. Back in my college years, <laughs> let's not give a year to it, I guess, anymore. You know, I had a business that basically I took from making a lot of money in my junior year to failing miserably in my senior year, nearly bankrupting myself before I left college. You know, after looking at all the mistakes I had made, the main thing wasn't just that I spent too much or that I made dumb decisions. I think that's just inexperience. Um, but rather that I didn't have anybody to call an inner circle. I didn't have anybody surrounding myself uh, that I really felt had my best interest at heart that I could learn from not only as a mentor, but just as a, as a guiding light. I mean, I was a film school kid. I mean, starting a business, like what the hell does that mean? And so I made a promise to myself at that point that if ever I was going to find success in my life, I would want to also create a community around myself to basically ensure that not only myself, but others would never feel alone in their business endeavors. And so take that a couple of years forward. My next business, I learned from my mistakes, became successful. And thereafter, I, I lived up to that pledge. And that's sort of where the book takes off. We, myself and my partner, Ryan, were connected through a mutual connector named Dan Shawbell. 
who took many, many attempts to get Ryan and I in the same room. Ryan was a hardcore introvert operations guy, me an extrovert cutthroat BD guy, you know, and, but, but we both really cared about community. I had just started this thing called YEC, Young Entrepreneur Council, with no real direction other than it was a group of really amazing young entrepreneurs that wanted to give back. Uh, Ryan had a successful startup that was based in Wisconsin, uh, soon to move to DC. He was looking for a change because they had just brought in senior leadership and it was a brazen careerist, one of the first online platforms in the Friendster era that had tens of tens of thousands of Gen Y folks that really cared about workforce development and, and so forth. There became a point where when we got connected, we instantly saw that this community thing was becoming not just some amorphous term or some buzzword, but this is a real thing. People are searching for this. And so we worked together to start YEC much more framework and regimented way. And it was based on these principles called, that we refer to in the book called the Super Connector Principles, about how to build a community in a meaningful and authentic way by building meaningful and authentic relationships in an age where both meaningful and authentic are two words that everybody and their mother is saying they are. And I think we, we found various different traits and insights from some of the top connectors across the globe that have influenced our lives, our business, that uh, we, as we built our communities, learn from and that we worked with. And we put this into this book, which really is not a tips and tools. We don't, we don't think there's a such thing as tips and tools. We think it's a framework, a mindset to rethink your life, you know, in the same way that if you want to go lose weight, you're not going to just, you know, have a Nutrigrain bar and hope for the best, right? You're going to refocus. You're going to rethink your life from the way you eat to the way you work out to the whole picture. Same thing goes with your relationships. And, and that's where we take off with the book, how to go about doing that, learning from our experiences and just running with it to give people that kind of insight. Wow. I don't even know where to begin on questions <laughs> on this. So you must have interviewed a bunch of people, I'm oh, assuming. Yeah. For, oh, yeah. yeah. Were there common threads that you were finding amongst some of the top super connectors? And if so, please share. Absolutely. The first and foremost thing, none of them would ever call themselves super connectors. Uh, that is a title to bestow unto them, not those that would call themselves that. We, we kind of think that in the age of LinkedIn, where everybody wants to stand out, you know, the best way to see if someone's full of it or not is, do they call themselves one of these accolades? Like, I'm a relationship ninja. Uh, you know, it's the same kind of thing. But we found a number of different things. First, they were all incredibly emotionally intelligent. Empathy was at the cornerstone of how they interacted, made decisions, and worked with people. They were habitual givers. They were people that didn't look for value in terms of extraction, but value in terms of creation for others. They were very self-aware, not only introspectively, but externally as well. So not only were they self-aware from the perspective of knowing like, this is what I know of myself, this is how I view the world in terms of strengths and my weaknesses, they also knew how others would perceive them. I think a lot of mistakes that some people make is they have a lot of, they're very internally self-aware, but externally they have no concept. And so, you know, this goes a lot to the type A people out there. They assume that, you know, I am a hardcore killer that is going to go out there and win, win, win. Yeah, I might be a good guy, but yet when you look to talk to people, they don't want to deal with you because your type A bravado comes off as an, you're an arrogant son of a bitch. And so there's just a different level of understanding. So we found that. We also found that uh, a common thread was the idea that they were designing their lives in every aspect. They, a lot of people specifically talked about the idea of being the big fish in a small pond in their world. You know, and it's interesting, if you look at my partner and I, you know, Ryan is the hardcore introvert, obviously small group settings are his thing and so forth. He chooses to live in small suburb, outside of city limits, you know, you know, be very involved in like a local community aspect because that's the that's his small group thriving environment. Whereas I live in New York City, arguably the loudest hustle bustle city in the world. And when I tried to do the suburbs thing, uh, it was a disaster because it wasn't how I thought about the world. And so I think that these kinds of things were some of the ideas that were espoused uh, and that they these folks live by, in addition to the number of ways that they connect people or how they think about building relationships differently. I mean, all the, the more tactical things they do uh, are all based on those specific internal traits but externally are manifested in ways that while they follow certain protocols, have their own little spin, have their own little sense of how do I amplify my humanity in the things that I do to build relationships in this world. What are some of the things, some of the unique things that some of these people are doing in terms of building their relationships, fostering them, yep. nurturing them? 
Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, uh, we had one guy named Steve Sims. Steve is a super concierge. He's the guy that you call if you want to like scuba dive down to the Titanic, right? Like he's like the one percent to the one percent to the one percent uh, planner of these crazy, you know, dream activities. And this is such a simplistic yet so such an amazing example where it's just the idea of how he uses his phone differently. You know, we all look at our phones a thousand times a day, but how he communicates is fundamentally different. So, for example, it, when he wants to really communicate or connect with someone, he doesn't text them, he doesn't email them. He shoots a 30-second authentic video of the environment he's in, what he's wearing, what he's drinking, you know, really to give that person a sense that it took time, effort, really cared about it. Um, he gives the example of a guy that gave him a gift and he happened to be sitting drinking a cup of bourbon, wearing the gift without realizing it, and instantly like just shot that video in the moment talking about how thankful he was for it and cheers and all this. Again, even though it probably takes way less time to shoot that video, the idea of showing the context that he's not going to be misunderstood, that his 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 visual emotions are being you know expressed in a very clear and defined way is very different than a text message. Hey, man, wearing your jacket. Thanks. What does that mean versus look at this? That was one example. Sorry to interrupt. So that video is something that he, he made sends per it to, personally right. it's a personalized to... one-to-one communication. Gotcha. Okay, that was my yeah. okay. And, yeah. and so and so another example, a gentleman named Jason Gagnard, he runs a organization called Mastermind Talks, which is a really fantastic invitation-only conference and series of dinners that he does every year. You know, what he does is whenever he feels that two people really would love to meet, and this has to be like that moment where you're going to avoid like the double opt-in and all the normal protocols because you just know both these people so well and they just need to connect. And so in that case, he will shoot a two-minute video, okay, just for the two people he's connecting, spending about a minute on each person around who they are, you know, why he feels they're so compelling and interesting, the kinds of things we should be talking about, basically setting the table for a, an engaged conversation, removing all the friction points, and it's only ever meant for the two people that are actually seeing it. Yet again, the thoughtfulness, the time, and, and so forth, the fact that each person has that relationship, they're willing to engage with that piece of media in a fundamentally different way. So he's doing that ahead of them meeting Correct. at the dinner? He's, okay, when he wants gotcha, to introduce yeah. those two people, he's going to go and do this and then send it to those two people as instead of the John meets Sally, Sally meets Sue email, it's, hey guys, watch this video. And then boom, it all kind of materializes from there. It's so personal, so unique. Um, and again, these are common sense tools that are used every single day. Um, another key example, and this is something that we do at the community company for all of our groups as well, like Forbes Councils and others, take Facebook. Again, another thing that everybody and their mother is trying to like throw up brand speak all over on a daily basis or, you know, all caps, you know, style marketing jargon. We don't believe in external Facebook communication. We believe in small curated group communication. So everything we do is through Facebook groups. Again, you can have a very well moderated Facebook group that brings together people because you're able to show the three key things that matter to people, curation, context, and thought. You know, these are the kinds of things that are incredibly valuable to people because if you're put in the right room, digital or otherwise, with 5, 10, 50, 100 amazing people, that is often more valuable than just saying, well, we have access to 3 billion people. It's like what LinkedIn used to be, right? Everybody's like, oh, LinkedIn. Now it's LinkedIn spam on a daily basis. And so I think that these kind of things all follow sort of the key ideas of community builders, closed curation, experiential opportunities, things that turn the relationship into what it should have been and what it was originally, which was a long-term, you know, viable, mutually beneficial relationship versus what it's become today, which is short-term transactional, what am I getting from you today type thinking. Um, that's actually why we say a lot in the book that we believe networking is dead, that we believe the construct of networking is fundamentally flawed um, from our worldview. Because networking, while it was probably in its heyday of the, you know, Raccoon Lodge back in the day, uh, the, the really valuable thing of 10 guys are at the lodge hanging out talking, it's become MLMized. It's become, you know, guruized. It's become industries of people trying to sell us stuff that doesn't make sense because it's not based on human first thinking versus what we believe, which is this connector mindset, not short term, but long term, not transactional, but value creation, you know, things that really at, in the long run are going to make the difference in 
you know, building your relationships. So in the long term, if you have to make an ask of someone, if you are looking for a referral from someone, it doesn't give you that icky sensation like that we get with so many people that are quote unquote networking to us. Um, I think the connector mindset is one that if people actually took on, they would find a lot more value, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're somebody that is a salesperson or an internal, you know, tech resource, it doesn't matter. It's the idea of the human first approach that I think we've lost. Yeah, I agree. Now, how do you get other people that are part of some of these groups to engage? Yep. Yeah, I'm very personally, I'd just love to know that because most people like to just be flies on the wall. And and I don't want to necessarily call them takers or voyeurs or whatever they might be. But I'd really like to know what it is that you're doing to curate the group to keep people contributing because most people... What I've noticed is networking to them. They're the most of the people. The reason it gives it the icky name because it's a retro or it's a reactive approach when they need something as opposed to, you know, proactively contributing to benefit other people. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It starts first, first and foremost, with the curation aspect. You know, if you, let's say, are one of our communities today, like Forbes Councils or YEC. Every individual group has first a series of protocols around an application and all these things. So there are steps. So everybody has the same experience that if they get all the way to the final step and get in, there's an understanding that this is a vetted circle. Right. So it's the first step that it's not an open group. It's it's something that is curated by a number of different criteria, whether that's revenue, location, industry, title in some cases um, to make sure, first and foremost, the group makes sense for its intention. The second is the idea of skin in the game. Now, we are for uh, believers in for-profit communities. We do not believe in just, you know, build a group for group's sake. We believe build relationships because relationships are thoughtful and meaningful. But you don't just go build groups because in our worldview, if you have not opted in to a group with some skin in the game, your engagement just fundamentally will just drop. It is the reality of time, effort, energy, and bandwidth that is ever shrinking today. So that's the second thing. The third is moderation. We don't allow just people to jump all over the boards. We have strict rules in our various different communities around how you can communicate, how you can reach out, the kinds of good or bad asks. um, What does it mean to connect with someone and why? You know, really educating them, but holding their hand through the process. Uh, And also not just moderating, but facilitating conversations, bringing people in, even as something, again, as simple as a Facebook group. If somebody asks a question, going the extra mile to use our data about our members, to tag the right people the conversation to start, again, that proactive approach, um, that you get your top influencers on a subject matter to start it, which will then trigger off people who might be those voyeurs or people on the side. Uh, So those are some of the key things I think that matter. Uh, We're also doing constant check-ins, asking people if they are uh, in need. I think the, the number one challenge that anybody that does any level of community building faces is sort of what you've alluded to, uh, which is the idea of, you know, what is a conversation? And it sounds funny, it sounds so obvious, right? But it's not. Most people can't put three words together or they're lazy, right? Most people don't know even what the right question is, right? Like if you're in a networking event, I even hate saying that word networking event. <laughs> it has such a bad connotation to it. But if you're in a networking event, you know, it's the typical, what do you do? You know, all that kind of stuff. Those are horrible questions. Um, so I think what we, our mindset is, we believe that our job is to help people learn to be the Sherlock Holmes of discourse. To be a connector is someone that understands that context is everything. And you have to be able to extract that context out of people because if you ask a yes or no question, if you ask a one word answer question, you know, you're, you're basically showing you're either not caring about investing or you're not smart enough to invest. In either case, that's not good. And so in our worldview, it's not, what do you do? It's what are you working on right now that's really exciting to you? You know, getting them to talk because then there's the follow up questions. And what you're doing is you're data mining, right? So whether you're doing this in the digital world, you're doing this in the real world, you know, I, I fucking love, by the way, that we call it the digital world and the real world as if it's, <laughs> you're supposed to be not human in one, but human in the other. But anyway, you know, but in, in the way you compose yourself and the way you have conversations, it should be this idea of constantly learning, building your private data set. And this goes back to a question you asked me before. What's another thing that all connectors do? They have their own version of a CRM. Okay, but 
the CRM, by the way, doesn't mean it's Salesforce or one of these. Like mine, for example, is the notes app underneath all the contacts in a phone where I'll put five things I learned about someone, you know, like the kind of thing of what do they really enjoy doing? What are they working on right now? If I ask them a question about the future, what can be the natural jumping off point next time I see them of following up about that? So if I run into them in three months, hey, last time we talked, this was what we were talking about. Like, how did that go? You're stealing my questions. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm just rolling, man. But, but those kinds of things are invaluable. And, but it's all about that curation because you start with great people. You help great people actually feel that they're in a trusted safe space. You then help those people to communicate in a way they normally wouldn't because they've been brought up in a world that they're scared of, of opening or being vulnerable in. And then after that, you allow for constant follow-up and moderation and facilitation to build on that trust, to build on that value, to make the community stickier and help to educate the newer members of how trusted the safe space is. So you touched on something that I thought was really, I think you really hit the nail on the head. And I'm not sure if it's a trust or if it's a fear. What do you think is one of the biggest things, or maybe it's just even mindset that holds people back? All of it. It's amazing. First, I think there's there's so many steps to this, right? So one area is I think you have a world of extroverts running the quote unquote networking world. And yet I would argue introverts are in many cases better at actually connecting with people. I agree wholeheartedly. And so you have a lot of these people that are being held back because they've been told all these lies because they're not applicable to being an introvert. And so they continue to be the guy or the woman standing in the corner rather than actually creating a strategy that works, which we call an oasis strategy, something that is you know, creating your own safe space in an area or in a level you're comfortable with. And so I think that's the first thing that, that a lot, an entire generation of people are learning the wrong way about how to build relationships. That's number one. I think number two, we are in a personal branding world today where everything is instantly everywhere. And I think you have a lot of people who are trying to have this pristine image of perfection, of the fake it till you make it strategy, if you will, of, of being the guy or the woman in charge, the CEO, the best company. And they don't allow themselves to be vulnerable because that was the antithesis to this facade that they're creating around themselves. And so even if you get them into that trusted safe space, sometimes you still can't break them down right away because it takes time for them to realize like, wow, you can actually open up in a forum-like setting of this kind. So that's the, number, that's the second one. And then the third one, and this is one that I had to break as a younger person, ego. I think you have a lot of people who want to appear smarter than they are or better than they are. And this goes, I guess, somewhat to the personal brand, but some some of it is actually mindset where it's not them trying to be. It's just they have to kick this bad habit where, you know, they don't want to have any damage to the daffodil-like prettiness of that they're trying to, you know, be. And and I think that the idea of being wrong or or being a part of a conversation where people disagree with you, especially if you're surrounded by yes people all day, um, is really eye-opening for some people and they can't handle it. I think that this is why relationships, we call it, you know, the idea of an inner circle is so valuable because all these things can be easily fixed if you have the right people around you. And, you know, you can call it whatever you want. Either it's the right five people, you're the average of the five people you're with. I mean, there's so many ver ver versions of this. But at the end of the day, do you have people around you that you fundamentally trust that you could put it all away for a minute and actually say, hey, John, why do I suck? Where am I not good? How can I be better? And I think that's where community and relationships can be so incredibly valuable because because in the Facebook world and Pinterest and Twitter and LinkedIn that were all so professionalized and out there, you need that oasis because if you don't have it, you don't learn. And then all you're doing is amplifying bad habits, which are going to hurt you in the long run. Yeah. Let's stick in the vein with the book and then I'll toggle back to, to some of the other things. How long did it take you to write? So my partner and I took about nine and a half months to write the book. We were doing this while obviously still building our business. It's a pretty good turnaround. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, longer than we thought. My first book uh, called Never Get a Real Job, I wrote by myself. That took about four months to write. But the the interesting thing about this book, and a lot of people have been asking me, like, you know, what do I think about the book writing experience? Um, it's the most grueling, horrible experience on earth. Um, <laughs> it's, it's hell on earth. But what made it very interesting, this go around, was that having someone who who, you know, I trust implicitly in life and business, who I think we have a lot of very similar theses on everything we talk about, but there were some areas where we got into it 
on debates around what could work and not, but we didn't sanitize it for the reader because the answer is there is no one answer. And so again, he's the introvert, you know, community builder operations guy. I'm the extrovert BD sales guy. You know, there are those perspectives, but I often say when people ask me, what's the biggest learning lesson you've learned as you built these communities, you've built your own relationships. And I said, it was the idea that I could learn more introvert level behaviors and mindsets uh, and, and make those mine versus continuing on that type A extrovert way of doing things because you can get so much more value in relationships when you know you do things like listen more than you speak. Put yourself in smaller groups that versus larger ones. Make it that you're not just going to attend a conference of 5,000 people and walk out with 5,000 business cards, but you're going to go to that conference and build four dinners with eight people each that you're actually going to create real conversation around and put the time weeks in advance to make those formal invitations to those people so they know who is in the room, that there's time, curation, effort, and that you're the center of the sphere of influence. That's an introvert tactic. Right? That's because introverts, if they walked into that room of 5,000 people, they'd have a heart attack. They wouldn't know what to do with themselves. So out of necessity, they create these kinds of spaces, which, by the way, work better. So I, I think that there just comes this moment where we all have to realize, like, the idea of whether it's, you know, in our book or in connecting and community in general is that there is a better way to do this. There is no five minute abs formula. Uh, there is no one size fits all approach. But I think that if we all take a step back and realize that we ourselves are subject to quote unquote networkers, I say that, you know, with slang every day and we hate it, yet we are guilty in many cases of doing the same damn thing to other people. If we took a step back and realized there's a better way and took that on and put the steps in to realize like relationships are a journey, okay, they're not a mission, then I think that we'd be a much better off, much, much builder, uh, stronger relationships would form. And I think we'd all be more successful in business. And by the way, thankfully, uh, you know, as much as I could sell a billion books, the reality is only a small percentage are actually going to take it to heart anyway, even though it's staring them in the face. What are your thoughts? I have a strong perspective on this, but I'm very curious to get yours uh, regarding the follow through or the thank you. Oh my God. So it's funny. In the book, we talk a, a whole section about the number one failing of many people, and that is the follow-up. It amazes me in this day and age of every second us being pinged and bombarded by stuff that we just assume like somebody doesn't want to hear from us again, right? Or we just say, we don't want to add to that noise. No, you don't want to do outbound crappy cold shit, right? But if you've met with someone, closing that loop or allowing for the continuation of the relationship through continued dialogue to form, or having, again, the next step in your overall community strategy, like if you meet John, John's a CEO, maybe you've created an online forum or you know Facebook group or whatever it is to have those contacts be able to connect, like bring him and invite him into that sphere. How you don't do any of that is mind blowing. It's kind of like, take it, take it to a level that maybe all of your listeners can identify with, right? In the book, we talk about this idea about creating a remarkable experience. It's how we build our events, um, no matter what they are, like we have a very methodical approach to how we bring people together. It is gospel to us. There is no like, let's go try something. It's like, we. this is through real research, real feedback and so forth. And at the very end, the follow-up is so crucial, especially in our role that we're membership-based, because you know what? Assumptions are the killers of most businesses, but assumptions are really the killers in a membership business, right? Because if you're assuming you're giving people what they want, what can help them be successful, and you're fundamentally wrong, you're doing the absolute opposite, which Disservice. is wasting their time. And that's the one asset that they will never get back. And so, you know, we say that, that the follow-up is not only about like, thank you, it's about where can we improve? Or did you meet everybody that you wanted to connect with at my event? If there's anything, is there something you missed out on? Is there something you didn't get to ask someone? Oh, if in, in a lot of cases, we use data to see who should connect prior to an event. We know that we, we thought it would be great for you to meet John. Did you meet him while you were there? Again, because it allows us not only to close the loop, but to continue the conversation. And more importantly, to create a value opportunity if the value wasn't created on the real estate that we created at that time. So it's insane to me that people don't do that part. And I, I think um, one of the key lessons that we, we talk about in the book and something that we know it sort of ties into this directly, uh, which is this idea that the best super connectors, another thing that they all do, they say no more than yes, right? 
no more they than say yes. no to people more than yes. Oh, no more. Like, right? Yeah. And, and, so, and so the funny thing is, is that when people ask them to do things or, hey, I'd love to meet up with you. About what? I'd love to partner with you. Who are you? Like all these things. But the funny thing is what they find is that more times than not when they say no the first time or more times than not when they say their heads down, people simply put like stop whenever there's an immediate gate and don't try to do another follow up again because it's just they've been scripted to not try it. And in some cases, when there's follow up with, let's say, even a clarification, like before I say no to something, you know, well, tell me more about it. Go silent. No one ever says anything. So, you know, versus if you maybe went over the top and made it more personalized, now there's a connection. Follow up is not just about thank you. It's about trying to maybe find the right fit in the right world you're if in. If I can interrupt, because you just made me think of something that I have such a big pet peeve with. I'd be curious to get your take on the LinkedIn invite. Oh. <laughs> Do you know where I'm going with this? Well, you know, just take it from there. We'll see. What you're... Yeah. Hi, John. I would love to be in your professional network. Yeah. That's How are you? We use LinkedIn a lot yeah. in our communities to connect with people sure. um, and prospects that we believe will be a fit. But, you know, we do things like actually look at who they are. You know, you and I were joking right before this interview about the recruiter that called me, you know, a CEO of a company that, by the way, he owns a big portion of asking if I would change jobs because they saw me on LinkedIn. And you're just sitting there like almost like you want to hear more just to be like, this is where's the punchline. <laughs> and then you realize most people are freaking lazy. And they don't read or they don't care. So you're saying that because you you have the ability to push a button, you should. And that's the kind of culture I think that networking has become in a lot of ways. It's because I can connect, I should. And we've somehow become a society that conflates the idea of being a connector with being connected. And those are not the same thing. And the people that are connected will try to make you believe, you know, their Facebook friends count, their LinkedIn connections are somehow an indication of their success. I remember back in the early LinkedIn days, if you remember, there was actually like a super LinkedIn user idea. Like people would be like, oh, I have 5,000 connections on LinkedIn. This going way back to the beginning when that was actually like uh, somewhat of a big deal. And people would profit off the idea that look how big my network is. Today, you know, you could throw a, a, a dime and hit 50 people on the way down a street of people who have thousands of connections. Who cares? And I would argue that if you just let everybody be your friend anyway, Anyway, like on LinkedIn, I say yes to everyone because it's not an area that I actually focus on. And so if they want to follow my content or things like that, sure. But it takes a lot for me to respond to you if you privately DM me or, or want to have a chat of some kind or put me in a, in a thread. And if you do, kudos, because you've gathered my attention on something of value. But, but when it comes to like really specific connection, people know how to connect with me. If you know me, you know how to connect with me. And that's not something I'm going to share with everybody. But that's that's the key. You, you, you would be given the right channels. You know the protocols. Uh, and I think if more people paid attention to how people want to be communicated with versus just thinking they can because they hit a button, you'd build better relationships as well. Apologies for interrupting this conversation, especially if you're really enjoying it. I know that I get frustrated when I'm listening to a good podcast, so I'll make it quick. If you're enjoying our podcast, please support us on patreon.com slash networkwise. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash networkwise. All patrons will receive early access to podcasts and exclusive networking advice. Okay, that was painless. So all you have to do now is help us on Patreon and enjoy the remainder of the show. Yeah, so I, when I put on my LinkedIn profile, I, uh, I put my middle initial after my name so I can make sure that I can I tell right away that someone didn't even take a minute to see even who I was. And they just hit that button about invite or whatever it is. Yep. So it doesn't even, there's zero personalization. Yep. And I'm like, you couldn't even take a second. You know, what are you trying to do? Just build the numbers? Yeah, I think we've become a society of bells and whistles when it comes to the way we look at connecting with other people. Um, again, brands, we talk about this all the time with brands. They're so worried about engagement in the sense of how a brand thinks about engagement, they're actually not thinking about engagement at all. Recently, Facebook, uh, as I'm sure you know, you know, changed their whole algorithm. And all of a sudden, you know, you would have thought by reading Ad Age or Ad Week that the brand world was on fire, that brands were going to collapse in on yeah. themselves. And the reality is it's very simple. You can't build a community uh, that you don't own, right? Eyeballs are, and vanity metrics are not representative of people. 
right? The representative of I liked your piece of content. It's, it's this philosophy. The easiest way to describe it is like this idea that you think water is always going to come out of a spout. But the spout is, you know, not on your property. But, you know, because you could see the spout, because you could put a bucket under it because it goes over onto your property, you just assume the water is always going to come. Then one day the neighbor moves and says, well, I'm closing off the spout. And you're like, how dare you? I mean, that's crazy. You know, and that's what's happening today. A lot of people are building on real estate they don't own um, or they try to think they have to be on everyone's real estate at the same time. What's your LinkedIn strategy? What's your Facebook strategy? What's your Twitter connection strategy? I mean, it's like, of course, people are like fed up with this crap or think that they can't even get started or fall into lazy practices because they think they have to be everywhere to everything. So you mentioned before, I'm sorry to keep switching gears, but, but you talked about the YAC council sounds great. How many people per event do you typically put together? So we have several different structures for events, anywhere from 12 to 40, I would say on the average event. We do one event a year that's a much larger event, but that's that's because it's South by Southwest and it's just a massive space. It's very hard to stop people from attending that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we look at it as there's a three-part act in every event we do. There's the pre-production, if you will, the production and the post-production. Um, we sort of already talked about the post-production part, which is your follow-up and your surveying and all that. But the two steps before are crucial. Pre-production is the idea of not just, you know, what event space are you picking, right? But it's this idea of who are you inviting? Who are you going to talk about to one another before the event to build a little bit of buzz? How do you ask questions? Three, five simple questions. What are you working on right now? Again, removing the friction from people that you can basically create a digest of the answers as well as a LinkedIn you know, profile so they know who the person is. Send that to the whole group so they all know who's going to be there with some things to start off conversations with. You have a community manager on site that knows the people intimately and knows the information so they can crisscross the room to make sure the connections that should be happening are happening. And then there's the special little moments during the actual event itself that make it special, um, whether it's a moderated discussion, whether it is uh, something like you have, like this is like something I do and it's not something we do as a company, but whenever I'm at an event, it's a skill set I have. So I use it in this one regard up to like 15 people or so. I can, I have a very good photographic memory of remembering what everybody says. So I can go around the table and say, you know, for example, tell me one thing that no one at this table would ever believe about you. And then I can go around the table after they've all done it and do the same thing. And it's an exercise in explaining to people that it is these special factoids that makes the difference of any other event. Because now when you meet John and John tells you, you know, I love black diamond cross keys, cross uh, country skiing, right? You know, there's a certain kind of understanding that if you are not an outdoorsman, there's a way to have that conversation, right? If you are an outdoorsman, well, there's an opportunity maybe that you're going to go and connect with that person outside of let's go have a coffee, right? So there's just learning those special things. And again, extracting that great context. Um, it's also some of the things that we do. We'll put people next to each other that don't know why they should connect, but we do. And we say, you've all been placed next to one another for a reason. Tell us at the end of the event if you figure out why. Mm. And like the funny that. thing is, some people will never figure it out, even though it was G- Give me an example. You got anyone come to mind? So, so again, I use two people. Like if John and Jack are sitting next to each other and we know uh, that they both had massively failed Series Bs because of the you know Great Recession that happened in 2010, right? Like that experience of what that was like is something to bond over. But they're not necessarily thinking that, but the whole point of the exercise is not necessarily whether they figure it out or not. The point of the exercise is they are now talking about things that they know are not obvious. And now they're interacting on a whole new level, learning things about people that they normally wouldn't come out with and avoiding the freaking small talk, which is the death sentence of any relationship. (laughs) Um, Again, it's these exercises that are, again, human, not cheesy, right? The icebreaker that actually gets you wanting to talk to someone versus, you know, something that feels a little bit staged or or, or not appropriate. Another thing we do, uh, which we found is, is great, is making sure that they view us, the community managers, as stewards uh, of them, not as elite in the room or anything. So like if we're doing a dinner, we'll serve them dinner. 
right? It's the idea that we are actually a part of the experience that they're bringing a part of this. Like they can rely on us. We're part of their extended family. We're part of their extended team. When you say us, who's us? Our team. Oh, so, gotcha. so, you know, okay, like yeah. the, the community company staff. Gotcha. Like they'll okay. know, like we're here to serve them in the role of facilitator or community manager, right? And it just shows that this is not a place for ego. Like I am the CEO of a company that makes many millions of dollars a year. I will serve someone, you know, peas and carrots. It doesn't matter, right? It's the ethos you're trying to share. How long are these events? Is no, it just they can like, go anywhere from one hour to three hours. Um, it depends. And um, are people coming in from all over? Oh, yeah. So, so one of the big strategies that we implore is most of our events, we actually will do them while a big conference is in town. So let's say, for example, there's a big advertising conference, right? So we know that we're going to get all those people inbound for that conference. But we also know that the people that are in the city of the conference are also going to be there. So rather than just, hey, it's a Tuesday night, let's get New York together. It's, well, there's New York, now there's 100 other people or 50 other people, 30, whatever it is, that we can invite and create this really great collision opportunity amongst people that it's not easy just to meet them. It's not just a quote unquote another networking event. And it's outside of the conference. But you know, we've often heard that a lot of uh, cases, it becomes the best event of the conference experience for those that are attending, because it is not the obvious thing you would expect. And I think that the serendipity of that, of meeting people outside of maybe the comfort zone or the industry you were thinking, but know that it's still a version of curation is a great opportunity. You're pulling the best people from, you know, the worldview that we look at out of that conference to go and meet. And by the way, we're also going to bring some other amazing people as well. How do you get people? Tell me about the recruiting process of, of finding people that are members of this group. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the, the people or if there's, is there a DNA that you look for? Yeah, you um, know, there's the no asshole policy in anything right. we do. There's different criteria in every community. Um, referrals play a big part. Uh, you know, obviously we have prospectors in each of our communities, membership directors that are constantly looking for the right kinds of people. We'll invite them to an event to experience what we're talking about or invite them to uh, be a part of one of our various activations. And then we basically have the same process, the application and so forth, um, to keep that vetted and that curated sense of, of value. You know, it's interesting. This actually brings up a, a really good story from the book itself. Um, we have one of the super connectors who I think is one of the best, most amazing connectors that actually can seamlessly interact on a business level with people with something that is quantifiably ROI, but not make it about that, right? And not be made, not and not in a way that they're they're hiding, you know, like the true intent. But it sort of goes to your membership question. So this gentleman named Derek Coburn, he's based in DC, has a group called Cadre. He used to be, well, he may still be, but one of the top wealth managers in the country. And this is an area that you know a lot about in the financial industry. A lot of service people in wealth management or financial advisory have very, very low success rates at referral business, which is shocking because you would think that this is like common sense. But he was always in the 30, 40% range of new clients coming through referrals, which was unheard of. And he did it through this one simple event event strategy with his community, which was genius. He basically figured out how do I, how do I create community? How do I connect people? How do I create value for the constituency that I care about, uh, my customers, but also at the same time, bring in people that would enjoy meeting those people or enjoy that ethos and not make it about wealth management or financial advisory. So he came up with this idea of expensive wine. And he made this community concept very, very simple about how entry or criteria would work. So there's no revenue threshold or anything because everybody in the room is obviously very successful. He said, there are two roles. One, you have to bring a plus one who, who you feel would be a part of this experience in a value add way. And two, no one in the room can be uh, what I what they would call like a pedestrian at wine. These had to be higher level people because the wine that we are obviously gonna be partaking in is gonna be not your typical $12 bottle of Zinfandel. Now, what he basically did was create the exact curated room that you'd want as a wealth manager. So what happens? He gets, let's say 30, customer success, you know, folks in 30 customers that are obviously very happy with him, getting invited to this really unique experience that are all bringing a plus one, likely going to be someone that is not a customer, someone that is exactly the perfect fit for a customer. Oh, and by the way, before Derek even says hello to that person, the plus one knows why they were invited, who Derek is, how successful he is for the customer. And oh, by the way, I don't think your wealth manager has done a cool wine event like this. Oh, maybe I should switch.
And so the first time he shakes hands with anybody in the room, what happens? He's going to go and say, oh, yeah, no, it's great. And if there's anything I can do, let me know. Oh, well, you know, John here says great things about your wealth management firm. Love to talk to you. Maybe we can get together sometime. And boom, he instantly turned an intimate community setting with no intentions. He was never going to pitch, right? But into something that made total sense for everybody involved. The win-win-win. Smart. Love that. Absolutely love that. What are other good stories? Or, or Actually, you know what? Let me ask you this. In the course of writing this book, anything counterintuitive to you that, that came to your attention? It's interesting. There were a lot of unique tidbits and things. Yeah. But I think it was more than anything, it was gratifying to know that we were doing something that we believe to be best in class. Because again, the funny thing is, is that as much as connectors are connectors, and most of them know each other, it's not like we're trading notes. Given the opportunity to take notes on them, you get to see how many how many synergies there really are. I think one of the things that really was striking, uh, if I had to sort of pick something that may be a little bit more contrarian, was how everybody had, like I said earlier, this version of their own CRM, but not a CRM. You know, we had everything from like, again, guys like me who take like three bullets, put it into a, a mobile app to people like Michael Roderick, who uh, his claim to fame was he went from high school teacher to Broadway producer in two years with no background in Broadway financing or production. And he did it all through taking 2,000 meetings with different people that he individually sought out over that period of time. And then he became a Broadway producer. And if you look at his CRM, it's an Excel spreadsheet, nothing fancy, except the thing is about 50 columns long of data on every person he meets, his own custom rating system, not if people are good or bad, but what they're good or bad at, uh, his own category system. So again, not industry, but like the kind of connector they are. And so when he's out and about in his world, you know, he can instantly just put a couple search criteria into this massive list and basically, you know, have the magic of curating or connecting on demand people that should know one another based on this massive thing. And so I think what it, the striking thing, I say all that to say this, the striking thing was validating that there isn't one way, but there is one ethos. There is one mindset. I don't think that I would ever tell someone use this tool, not that one, or think, you know, about these steps, not those steps. What I would tell them is, is that there is something to be said about a simple mantra that we talk about at the end of the book, which one of my earliest mentor said to my dumber, younger self that didn't uh, take it to heart till many years later, that real relationships take real time and you can't cheat real time. I've since amended that to add a statement that says, but you should spend your time to cheat your time to create more real time. Uh, because the idea is at the end of the day, that real time is not what can be cheated, but everything else in the life can. We're in an age today where growth hacking and all these other stupid terms are starting to sort of eke their way into every single part of business and life. And simply put, you know what? If you hack away your family time, then you're not gonna have a fulfilling family time. If you hack your way away time from your best friend time, you're not gonna have a best friend. You hack your way from your business life and it goes on and on and on. But yet we're always trying to find the conversion rate that makes sense, the thing that's gonna be the knob that twists that. But we're so worried about the metric that we're not worried about the goal. If the goal isn't to be more meaningful and more present with those that matter to you, what the hell are you doing? And I think we are very much uh, becoming a society where the noise is only going to drown out signal more and more. And if we don't really hone on what our signal is, we don't prioritize that signal, then we're going to try to be everything to everyone and find ourselves being nothing to no one. Yeah. Have you always had this in you? Is this innate? No. Okay. No, uh, I yeah. think this is a very teachable skill set. I'm the first one to say like back where I started this interview, you know, when my first business went down, I suffered from every dumb rookie mistake you can make from bravado ego to poor uh, financial decision making to trying to trying to be something I wasn't or do everything I could versus honing skill sets. These are all things that I think you can learn. What you can't learn unless people teach you and most people don't allow themselves to be in the classroom, if you will, comes back down to the emotional intelligence and self-awareness we talked about earlier. You know, in the book, I tell a story when I was at NYU that I was invited to this very prestigious room of uh, 10 kids who were hand-selected by the university to meet with a very big Hollywood executive. 
And this was to me like a guy who wasn't the artsy one. I was the business guy. Uh, to be in this kind of room, it was my first thing that ever I would be like in a room with a guy who could literally tell me like, what is the room like when you guys are making the decision on what gets greenlit? I mean, that's a really unique experience. And I was looking forward to it for weeks. We get to the room and there's this woman that without even missing a beat, and this was my first time I ever saw someone who was so unaware, I'm oh, sorry, so self-unaware, it was amazing. We sit down and before we can even say hello, my name is, she opens her backpack, picks up a script out of her bag, throws it in front of the executive, and proceeds to explain why he needs to make this movie. Destroying the credibility of the room, oh. the executive oh. is about oh to vomit God. how horrible this is. We, the rest of the nine, are embarrassed, and that was it. Energy it was just got pulled from done. the room. Every, gone. And instantly, it became worthless. At the end, I, I went right to the guy. I said, I'm so sorry. And you could tell he was just like, that could have been much better, and it wasn't. And I said, I'm really sorry. I did keep in touch with him over the years. But the point is, that relationship never materialized because instantly, I am brought into the story of that crazy bitch who did this thing. And you know, you say to yourself, like, oh my God, like, how can this be? And yet... I'm still shocked today that as somebody who's a father of four, who really loves people, that there are still some horrible people or <laughs> such, un, again, self-unaware people out there who, you know, it, it, not even like little transgressions, like they'll step in front of you in a line and not care, but just like how they talk at you, not with you, how a meeting happens and just like reading the tone totally incorrectly. You know, all these things that just are just fundamentally flawed. And you realize that it is a superpower if you can become self-aware. And that's why, like I said, it's not just about knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are internally, but externally how you come off. Because it wasn't until one of my friends sat me down right around the time, before, right before my first company really failed. And I said to my friend, Adam, I'm like, Adam, what do you think of me? You know, I know we're, we're best friends. You've known me since birth, but I, that's always going to be the case. But like, if you didn't have 21 years of insights on me, what would you say? And he went down the list, arrogant, pompous, thinks you're better than people, cares about money. And it was a rude awakening. But I needed that. I needed to hear from someone that I could stomach, that I trusted their judgment, that had more context on me, arguably, than anybody except my parents, probably. And even in some cases, probably more so than my parents, to be able to say those things. And that sucks. But you know what? You know what sucks more? Not hearing it. And so I think that all those things combined, I think, are incredibly valuable. And I think that's the superpower that you can build for yourself, not one that you have to be born with. I do think you were born an introvert or an extrovert. But again, as we've said earlier, there's an argument to be made that both can be incredibly successful connectors if they learn the right mindset and the right framework early on for what works for them. Agreed. Are there any people in particular that you've read that have been eye-opening to you? You know, Adam Grant, I think, is an amazing guy. Yeah, give and uh, take. He's in the book as well. But, you know, Give, give and Take's obviously a, a quintessential piece. Keith Ferrazzi, uh, who wrote the foreword for our book, he was instrumental in my career and really learning, you know, early on when I was still thinking about this stuff, like what it really meant and tying it together for me. Um, so I, I think those guys are great. Derek Coburn's book, uh, Networking is Not Working, is a really good book. So, so I think that there's a lot of different things. But the good news is, is that while while they're all entertaining reads and they're all very valuable, they say many of the same things but in different ways about the idea of what actually is working. Uh, and I think that with our book, our role was not to play the do this strategy. It was here's what's working for the best connectors in the world. Now go form your own playbook from this mindset because there isn't a series of step one, two, three. Is it a, uh, a tools for Titans for networking? Is that a fair? <laughs> as much as I would love to say, I'm just like Tim Ferriss. Um, <laughs> I think so in a way, it's written very differently in terms of the style of tools of Titans. But I think the idea of getting the best minds on a subject matter to sound off about their thinking and then infusing your own successes and failures as 
as well. I think it makes for an entertaining read, and I think it's something that can, again, be great for people across the whole spectrum. I think the, the thing for us that was most important was not only, like I said, to have these different perspectives of people, but to also look at the reader and realize that they are either one of two very different kinds of people, and by myself and my co-author being a representative of those two very different kinds of people, we could make a book that they could all extract some level of value from to go off and create their own playbook with. To, to me, this sounds like a book that everybody could benefit from. Was there a specific audience that you had in mind? No, I think it really was. It's it's people who really want to prioritize relationships in business uh, and in their lives. And I think that you have to make a conscious decision to go and do that. I think today it's funny that, you know, we put networking almost as like one of the steps like marketing. Right. The reality is you don't get to market something unless you've built a network. And that's the irony, I think. It's that it's become like a stepping stool or, or again, a bullet point rather than the foundation of how you live your life. Um, again, I still have people that I go to when I mentor kids or in junior achievement or uh, go to an incubator or any of these things, these uh, startups that are up and coming that are so focused on things like product that they don't realize someone has to buy the damn product. Someone has to use the product. Someone has to go and market the idea of partnering to get the partnership to build a long-term value proposition with that. So I think we're forgetting a lot of steps and those are based on relationships first and foremost. Yeah, and then where do you think people drop the ball the most when it comes to relationships? Oh boy. I mean, again, I don't think that there's one grandiose answer, but I think it's not prioritizing. It's putting, I think it's putting their own goals ahead of anything else. I think people are still thinking transactionally, but trying to pretend they're not thinking transactionally. Like everybody's like, oh, I love being generous. And then when you ask them, well, what does that mean to you? It's a better way of basically them saying, I want to pat myself on the back so I don't look an asshole when I'm really out to try to extract value from someone. I think it's the wolf in sheep's clothing mentality. And so I think the, the mistake is people are using the words, they're talking the talk, but they're not actually executing on the things that are materially valuable that actually make the difference. And that frankly make people want to have a second conversation with you. Um, we're in pitch mode all the time. We're in vanity social media all the time. I will tell you that the last couple of people that I haven't seen in a while that connected or reconnected with me, you know, to dormant ties, if you want to go to uh, Adam Grant's lingo, what was most compelling wasn't that they first asked me, how's business? Right. Or, or something generic, like how's the family? It was a follow up to the last time we connected. Like, hey, man, I haven't talked to you in a long time. You know, X, Y, Z was going on in your life. How's that? Like we talked about earlier. To me, those things show that you're actually listening, you know, and I think that we're forgetting. We're so worried about numbers and metrics. We're forgetting the people behind those numbers and metrics. You know, this brings up one funny quick story that I think is very telling of, of what you're trying to ask me. I've been at a conference where I've heard some marketing genius talk about some funnel conversion strategy, right? We send these emails and this converts to this number and then that converts to this number and then we hit them four times and then eventually a credit card transaction. You go through this rigmarole and then if you have the opportunity to talk to them privately, like behind stage, I recently did this exact thing. Person talked about this whole growth hacking 101 seminar he was giving. And I went and I said, hey, so when somebody does that to you, when they email you and then ask you to schedule the call and then you take the call. Great question. And, and, and he goes, and I said, well, how do you feel about that? He goes, I don't do it because I know it's a tactic. And that's what I said. So what you're saying is that when you do it to other people, you're superior and better. When they do it to you, you're superior and better. So at what point do you trust the people that you're building these relationships with for business or otherwise? And it's telling because that is just the sign of the times we're in. Who cares about John? It's not about John. It's about a thousand Johns, a million Johns. That's that's not what it was meant to be. That's what we've created. That's what the system now wants you to believe. And that's the difference that we have to shy away from today. What do you think for people that are listening right now that are interested in building relationships on a deeper level? Because what I've noticed, too, is that a lot of people, they don't know what they don't know. It's so funny. I would hear people owned an executive search firm and people would always complain like, oh, they got that job because they knew somebody or something. And I'd say, yeah. They did. Yeah. They did. They, I mean, they, look, network, net worth, any of these cliche things. It's true. They're all true. There comes a point where you, you, know, you just have to say to yourself, what is the best investment I can make with the time I've got? And if you really can't figure out a way to say it's the people in your life, I think you're missing the boat. 
Mm. I don't understand the logic of people that don't prioritize other people. I think that being said, sort of what I said earlier, like the best super connectors in the world are actually the people who are methodically people that say no, because they realize that they want to really go deeper, not wider in their relationships. And so they'll create an inner circle of people and slowly bring people into that inner circle. Because the logic is if you're really deep with a smaller number of people, each of those people also has an inner circle. And so you have a better ability to jump between other people's inner circles. But because of the level of depth in the relationships of your main initial inner circle, you're able to have a much higher level introduction or potential connection with others that they trust. And I think that the mistake of many people today, again, in the social media world that we're in, it's how many people do I know? How do I meet as many people as possible? And that's where I think things like conferences are stupid these mega conferences that go to like thousands of people. It's like you don't even know where to start versus smaller curated groupings or the ability to go to some of these larger events. And again, whether it's joining other groups or Oasis strategies of your own, um, you know, finding your various different circles, having your wingmen and wingwomen, if you will, to be able to to navigate these spheres. I think that's crucial. Yeah, it's so funny. Uh, I wrote an article or maybe two articles on the wingman. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I look at people like, you know, certain folks that I hang out with, one of my board members is an example where sometimes I am his greatest strength in a room and sometimes he's my greatest strength in a room. And, you know, you you work to the advantage of realizing that people have different levels of relationships with other people, but that trust is transferable. Authenticity is transferable. And if you are a genuine person who has these deep ties with certain people, you know, it doesn't matter how big or successful the person you're being introduced to is because trust is transferable. You know, I remember when we were looking for investors really early on for our current company, um, I was introduced by a, a VC, uh, one of the LPs in a VC fund. Guess what? Like, yeah, you get more time and uh, a better level of attention when the LP of a fund, you know, the guy who gives the money to the fund comes in and says, this is a guy you should talk to. So when you're networking, quote unquote, in that surrounding, it's a very different situation than, oh, here's a guy I met at a pitch competition, right? It's just, it's a different level of understanding. I think that getting, again, the inner circle together and then using your inner circle to build a stronger network over time, again, not at some sort of interval, not a race, not a numbers game, but methodically building that inner circle by using its participants, I think is incredibly valuable. So what are people, what are things, getting back to your question I was asking before, what, what are things that you think people could be doing that, like, again, they were so self-unaware yep. about that they weren't networking, that they weren't contributing, yep. they weren't helping, and that they think of networking as, oh, wow, now I got to get a job, or yep. hey, I got to close this deal, or this is, you know, so now I have to network. Yep. So I think it goes back to self-awareness first and foremost. And so I think it's a good final point to leave us on. I look at... Uh, this simple exercise as something that I think if more people did, they would instantly be able to create the right foundation for how they think about building relationships. So for everybody that's listening to this, whether you're a seasoned pro of community building, relationship building, or, an, or a brand newbie, I think that this is what you should do. In the next five professional conversations you have with people you've never met before, you could be introduced to these people, but never actually had a conversation with these five people, I want you to Keep one thing in the back of your head. Do you find yourself drifting to direction A or B in each of these conversations? A is, wow, this person seems interesting. I want to figure out ways in which I can play a valuable role in helping this individual. Or B, this person is or is not valuable. So I need to either A, figure out how to extract that value or B, get the hell out of this conversation. If you can figure out which way your mind goes, again, the person who genuinely wants to meaningfully connect and play a role, the person that's looking to extract or leave, I think you're going to figure out very quickly where you need to build from. Because before you can build great relationships, you need to build yourself. And if you are someone who is a taker, I'm not here to judge you. Good luck. I mean, I've met people that are sales guys that'll be like, F it, I hit my quota. But they're not thinking about the fact that, great, they sold two, but 98 people will never speak to them again. So the burn and churn, you know, works for them. In my opinion, it will flame out. And so I think if you set that right foundational layer, if you create the right mindset, the right lens in which you view the world of people, 
you can fundamentally change all outcomes and yours. That's an awesome takeaway. So before I let you go, God, there's so much to learn. I got so many more questions, but I know time is of the essence. <laughs> um, outside of your family, who is the most impressive person you've met and what is it about them that's so impressive? And it doesn't have to be anyone fan. I mean, this is like a deep question. Yeah. It doesn't. Uh, wow. I've never been asked that. It's hard to say one person. If I'm talking business, I would use my friend Jeremy Johnson. So Jeremy is the uh, founder of three companies. Um, first one was acquired. Second one he took public. Third one is now massive and Mark Zuckerberg's first personal investment. Um, he's my age and has scaled multiple businesses to billions and billions of dollars in value, but comes from the exact same background as me. Middle class, you know, suburbs, but, but born and red guy, no silver spoon, didn't start with money, none of that kind of stuff. Comfortable, but not too comfortable. But showed me that ultimately the thesis is right. Relationships mean everything. You know, relationships that you can show that you deliver on value to others exponentially more valuable than having many, many dollars behind you. I've met a lot of rich kids that can't put two sentences together, let alone start a company. So I think that it's impressive to me because it shows, one, that my thesis is true, two, because it proves to me, and I would say this even if it was in front of me, that not everybody who makes it goes in about face on where they came from. I think that's something I have a real problem with. I've met a lot of people who I was friends with five years ago that right now probably wouldn't return a phone call because they've become too big for their britches. But that people can be good people and follow through on what matters to them. Um, and at the same time, you know, live a life that is respected, um, but also where they respect others. I think that that's crucial. That's awesome. Jeremy sounds like an impressive guy. Good dude. <laughs> well, listen, I, I really appreciate that. We, we spent an awful lot of time together. It's been great. We had an opportunity to spend uh, eat some lunch. Great place. <laughs> and I'm just really appreciative of your time because to me, time is the most valuable commodity on this planet. And I hope that all the people that spent their valuable time listening to this have a lot of takeaways. I know I did. Awesome. Thanks so much. You got it. Make it a great day. I'm really glad you made it through the whole show. It tells me that you found it entertaining and enjoyed the content. In the spirit of helping us continue to provide such great content and amazing guests, we appreciate your participation through Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash networkwise. Your support really helps. Also, if you or someone you know is looking for a career change, is building a business, seeking to expand sales, or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, then head on over to networkwise.com. Not only does this platform offer you a plethora of resources, but will walk you through how to expedite the outcomes and the aforementioned goals that you seek. Thanks again for listening. Make it a great day. And remember to always networkwise.